Now, at any other church uh, on Mother's Day, you would get flowers and comforted. We're going to talk about the end of the world. So why don't you grab your Bible, take out your Bible. If you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. We continue on in part 10 of our Revelation series, and we'll talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That is, uh, yeah, you're in the wrong church, I will tell you that. All right, uh, I'm sure that on Father's Day we'll hit the Antichrist, so don't worry about it. It's, uh, we'll even it out somehow, don't, don't worry. Uh, take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door and we can begin. I entitled today's message, Apocalypse Now. And we are now one-fourth of the way through this series. And I know it feels like forever, but we need to pause periodically and see if we can't get back the big picture. As I told you last week, that from here on out, things get very unusual. Um, as we will read today and study in depth next week, we do have the beginning of the opening of the seven seals. The first four are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, as we go through and begin to study these visions and scenes that John sees, learn about the, the bulls and the trumpets and, the, and all these amazing visions of a dragon and a woman and a beast and this and that, we need to kind of have a framework by which to understand what in the world is going on. It's not that when you get done with this series, you're going to know everything in its perfect order. It's that you will be equipped to wrestle with it. That is my job, to train you. And so what I want to do is I want to train you. And so we're going to be in school today. We're going to be in Bible school. I'm going to be going through a bunch of different views. I'm going to be arguing through a bunch of different scriptures as we step out. We will be in the Bible all morning long. We're going to be jumping around a lot. If it's hard for you to follow and be able to look around real fast, you may just want to set your Bibles down and listen. But if it is good for you to see it as well as hear it, by all means, get ready. Because we're going to be all over the place. We're going to be handling some of the biggest issues in all studies of Revelation. Issues like the millennium, tribulation, and how to view the whole book. So, uh, with no further ado, let's dive into one passage I believe that sets a proper tone. And that is the book of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. It's page 8. 37, for those of you that had a Bible handed to you, it's in the New Testament, and Thessalonians sounds old, but it is in the New Testament. It's right after what? First Thessalonians, all right. That's why I'm the pastor. All right, moving on. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, I want to begin with just a concept. We wonder many times why God gets so ferocious in the book of Revelation, why so much death and destruction? Why so much wrath? What is God so ticked off about? Uh, you would say, well, because people violated his name. And yes, he gets very tense about that. But I'll tell you one thing he gets even more irritated about. And that's when his children are harmed. So I want you to take a look at this verse and then reread the book of Revelation on your own time and see if it doesn't make a bit more sense. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse four, page 837 says this. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. 
He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of the power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. You want to tick off God, attack his kids, and he gets very angry. Part of the reason of the wrath in the future is what the tribulation martyrs called out for in the book of Revelation. They said, how long, O Lord, will it be till you avenge our blood? Part of the reason all the destruction that is coming upon the enemies of God is because they have tortured and persecuted and killed God's kids for millennia. He's not going to sit back idly and allow that to happen. So many of us blame God when bad things happen. God, why would you do this to me? How don't you love me? Don't you care about me? And every time his response is, hold on for a second, I'm going to get to that. And when I get to it, it's going to be so astounding. It's going to blow your mind. I have not let anybody get away with anything. I will exact my judgment. So when you see this, oh, this viciousness and God, he's coming with raging fire. That's a protective dad. That is a dad that is ferocious. And every time we look at it, we see something like, oh, God must not be loving. I would suggest to you that his wrath is the other side of his love. And it's extremely important. We go to the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you as we begin. As we know that in 1 Timothy 6, it says the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. We realize that no matter how much I discuss with you today, we do not know when Jesus is going to return. And that needs to be okay with us. And it needs to be okay in the lifestyle that we live. For example, the fill in the blank in front of you is this. Regardless of the order of the future, regardless of the order of the future, Christ deserves our all every day. Regardless of the order of the future, meaning I don't care whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. We're going to talk about all that today. Regardless of where you stand, Christ deserves our all every day. It should not be, oh, I think it's going to come at the end, so I'm going to screw around till we get up there. It's not the, oh, the, the rapture could happen any time, so I'm just going to live paranoid. It's not either one of those. It's I love Jesus. He has done the impossible for me. And I will now pour all my all into everything for Jesus. We must have a much better reason for living a Christian life than merely fear. There must be an element of love, a dramatic element of love. And I think God deserves it. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. Verse 1, it's page 870, it's the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. I'm just going to read, even though we're going to study it next week, I just want to kind of give you a flavor about where we're going. It says in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, John is writing, he said, and this is right after two weeks that we just studied, 
in the throne room. Remember where he got to see the lamb that was slain and the amazing worship and all that. Right after that, he sees this. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. You remember the seven seals on the scroll that I took 32 minutes to describe last time? All right, fantastic. Hard to forget that one. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Then the lamb opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Well, that's pretty dramatic. Understand, if there is a destruction of a fourth of the earth, that's the largest catastrophe since the flood. What would cause all this when will it happen how will it happen who are the four horsemen what are these seals and how do we solve it that we will do let's pray heavenly father thank you for today thank you lord that we have your word to read as confusing as it is as much as lord i feel absolutely inadequate and lost And yet, Lord, as we walk through this, would you make sure that even though we may not know the details, Lord, we never miss the big picture, that you are the king, that you will take us home, that you will provide for us, that you will love on us. For Jesus, you told the disciples that you would be with us till the end of the age. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why do we care about this? Is it all semantics? Is it all just academic? No, it really matters. Why? Because we're worshiping a God who is a certain way. You need to know what God is like. You can't fall in love with someone you don't know. Understanding the book of Revelation is knowing the God that you serve. You learn more and more about him. Not only that, but this is going to go down, period. He has written it, and so it will be, unless there is a view that says this has already occurred, and that view is out there. If you adhere to that, I understand that. I happen to view that other things are a bit more future. If indeed this is still future, it will occur. And I do not want any of us to be lost in the process. I don't want us led astray. I want us to know what we believe. I want to know backwards and forwards what to expect. When someone asks us, as the salt and light of the world, what's going on? I want us to have a reason. I want us to have an explanation. I want us to have something to say. For that reason, we do these studies. And you're going to go, well, this is kind of boring. Come on, what are we talking about? We're talking about real life. And we're talking about perhaps your future. 
So what do we got facing us coming up in the book of Revelation? Well, we just saw the seals begin to bro- be broken off the scroll and things are beginning to be unleashed on the earth. There will be seven of those. That's where we had the four horsemen. Then there will be a series of seven trumpets that are blown and something amazing happens every time. Then there is a vision of two witnesses being placed on the earth, wandering around Jerusalem, prophesying of the future and about Christ, being slain by the Antichrist, lying dead in the streets and being raised up after the third day, going up into heaven in front of everybody. There's a vision of a woman and a dragon. There's a vision of a beast rising up out of the earth, a beast rising up out of the sea, who we are told is the Antichrist and the false prophet, his right hand man. We see visions of 144,000 Jews being sealed on their forehead to be uh witnesses on the earth we see that the earth is harvested in a great harvest some to eternal life some to destruction we see seven bowls of plagues poured out on the world we see babylon a great city whatever that may be destroyed huge worship service the rider on the white horse jesus christ comes riding out with king of kings and lord on lord of lords on his thigh we then have the battle, the mighty battle of Armageddon, if you ever remember that, where the cities of the world go against Israel and Christ begins to fight and the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. We see Satan grabbed, locked up by an angel into the abyss for a thousand years. And then it says in Revelation 20, there is a thousand year reign of Christ. That thousand-year reign of Christ is what we look at as the place of peace where all the Jews' promises come true. Jesus comes down, sets up an earthly kingdom, perhaps. Then Satan is released for a short time to do the damage that he can do. And then the final battle. Then Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. There's a great white throne judgment. And then a new heavens and a new earth are revealed. The book is closed by Jesus saying, I'm coming soon. Be watchful. Now, that is what is before us. What in the world do we do with all that? Is it all in order? Well, it obviously cannot be. Because the stories of the witnesses end up before the Antichrist is revealed. But we know the Antichrist kills the two witnesses. So you kind of go, well, what it's doing, it seems, is it's showing you different vignettes of different pieces of what's going to happen. What our job is, is to try to maneuver the pieces and move them around into some form of a timeline. That's what we're going to try to do a little bit today. All right, here we go. Let's recap something I taught you on the very first week of this series. And that is there are four major views on how to read the book of Revelation. I want to go over those again with you very briefly because now you've already had a taste. You've been in this study with me for nine weeks prior to this. You've already read the letters of the seven churches, saw Jesus walking amongst the lampstands. So why don't we throw up the visual, if you could, Chris, the four major views of interpretation of the book of Revelation. Well, as you can see, with the first one, we called the preterist view. This means that when you read all the bad stuff of Revelation, it deals almost exclusively with the first century, meaning John was going to see it or was going to be immediately right after his time. As a matter of fact, almost all the events that you read will be about the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. AD 70, Rome sacked Jerusalem. They laid a siege to it. 
and tore it apart. Now, in that view, you would see the seven churches as being seven literal churches that are just about to go through it and get tore up. The four horsemen are very specific. There are four different explanations of what it was like to go through the siege at Jerusalem that was so horrifying for Jerusalem, they turned to cannibalism. Those are historical facts. Is it that view? Is most everything we read immediate future to John, but extraordinary past to us? Or is it the historical view? The historical view is that Everything you see in Revelation is a long chain of events over the last 2,000 years. Some of them were immediate, some of them went on, and it goes all the way throughout up to now, and a little bit of it is future, but most of it is historical. It uses a year for a day principle. When it says it was this many days, it actually means this many years. When you see the seven churches, they are seven specific periods of church history. That the four horsemen are specific elements of a 172 year period of the Roman Empire? Is that what it means? Is this history? The futurist view is that almost everything we're about to read has not occurred yet. Everything after chapter 4 is all in the future. That now that we move forward, we're now in chapter 6, so. We've already been in the future already in our study. This is the most popular view right now, which is the idea that everything is still yet to happen. How is it going to go down? The seven churches, nobody quite, they all argue as to what it means. Nobody quite knows what the seven churches mean. But they believe that the four horsemen are all the bad stuff the Antichrist brings about in the end. They're symbolically represented through those. Now, there's a couple different camps in the futurists. The strict futurist people think that the rapture will occur a little bit later. The dispensationalists believe that in chapter 4, remember when I talked about the fact that it, it said to John, come up here? Do you remember that? Uh, as John was going through, he said, come up here. There's something I want to show you. And I kind of just blew past it. That is the primary text for most dispensationalists to see that is where the church is caught up. And that's why the church is gone and everything else is future. So as much as I didn't focus on it, you need to understand to some people that is a dramatic verse about the rapture of the church. All right. Last view. Is it spiritual? Is all this stuff long, timeless truths that Revelation tells us over and over about how God deals with the world? We're not supposed to believe any of this stuff is literal. It's just symbolic. Even to the point of the Antichrist, there will be no literal Antichrist. It's just a spirit that is against God or an attitude or people that rise up against God. Is that what it means? All right. Well, I got to pick one of them, right? I got to preach somehow. I can't preach all four. We're going to be here forever. So I got to pick one. Where am I going to go as I move forward? Well, as I begin to do my examination through this whole study for the last series of months, I pretty much have come to a conclusion that the way I'm going to be preaching is going to be a hybrid of two and three. I will be speaking primarily from a futurist point of view that these things will occur in the future. However, some things are clearly historical in nature. I will try to go back and grab those. Now, is the preterist view legit? Could very well be when you go back and study the siege of Jerusalem and you look at the history books and look at what's in there, you go, oh my gosh. It's dead on. Is that a legitimate view? Absolutely. 
Is the spiritual view legitimate? Yes, it is. Do I give them credit? Are brilliant people on those camps? Yes. However, I have to make a decision to move forward. So as we move forward, I'm going to be going largely with number three, a little bit on number two. All right, we got that? You guys don't have to agree with me. All right, you do. Okay, moving on. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Now let's throw up the timeline. Let me show you something here as we go. There's a, there's a picture there, Chris, that I need you to pull up for me. All right. I don't need you to read all the little small words. Those aren't important. All I care about is this bar going across the bottom right here. This colored bar right over here. Notice how it says the Old Testament age. Now, when most people look, if they're going to say any of this stuff is future, the way that they look at the events of Revelation seem to fall in a very similar pattern. The pattern is this. You got the Old Testament. There comes Jesus. He kicks off the church age. That is from A.D. 33. The Acts of the Apostles. Remember Pentecost? That kicks off everything. And then at some point in the future, the tribulation will hit. All the bad stuff. Antichrist shows up, begins to be a ruler, begins to break a pact in the middle of it with Israel. Bad stuff starts to happen. That's the mark of the beast stuff. All that hits here. Notice the little rapture goes, rapture could happen here, here, or here. Okay? After that, you got a little green area. The green area is what we're going to hit next. In Revelation chapter 20, which we will study in depth, it says that what? Jesus Christ will set up some type of millennium. What does that mean? It talks about a thousand year reign of Christ when all those covenants are fulfilled with the Jews. There's worldwide peace. Even the animals and nature are at peace. It's where we get the famous phrase, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Okay, all that peace, Jesus literally sets up shop in Jerusalem and rules the world from that point. That is the millennium. Is it a legitimate thousand-year earthly reign of Christ? Well, let's go to the next slide and let's find out. The next slide, there are three views on what, how you want to read this, right? There is what's called premillennial. That means all that stuff is still future and it will be a literal reign of Christ. All that stuff I told you is absolutely literal. Jesus will come down. He will set up shop. And he will rule the world. People will be born and die during that thousand year period. That's why Satan will be released at the end so that they are tested just like we are. And then he will be put away and will move into eternity. Is that true? The second view is post-millennial. That means that when Jesus came the first time, he kicked off the millennium. He has been reigning ever since. When he was on the cross, he said what? It is finished. There's a passage in Mark that Jesus said, he said, you don't go in and plunder a strongman until he is bound. Do you remember that? Anybody remember the strongman passage? One of the early church fathers said that's exactly what Christ did on the cross. He bound the strongman and we've been plundering him ever since. Jesus Christ is already on the throne. He's already reigning. We're in the millennium right now. Problem with that view is that along with that view, it says that the gospel reigns with Jesus. And so the world's going to get better. And it's going to get better and better until the gospel completely takes over the earth and evil is almost eradicated. And everything will be set up, it will become awesome, and then Jesus will return. 
I'm not buying it. Sorry. Third view, amillennial. There will be no literal reign of Christ whatsoever. Jesus Christ will come back and he'll usher us into the future, but we are living in the millennium. It is all figurative. And as we go through this, once Jesus did it on the cross, everything was accomplished that was necessary. It has nothing to do with about the world getting better. It just means that we are living with a victorious Christ now. All right? So where do you stand? You understand why this stuff is so hard for me? You go through and you start going, wow, all of them seem pretty well biblically backed. Okay, so I got to move forward. As I move forward on this, I'm going to be largely premillennial when I discuss this stuff. I'm going to throw a bone to the amillennials because a bunch of them are brilliant, right? They know what they're doing. I'm going to absolutely say, listen, if you hold that, I completely get it. I understand it's a high view of Christ, a high view of what he did. However, I have not seen where the Bible suggests that some of this is not literal. So we got to grab some of it as being literal. So I'm going to be primarily teaching out of number one. Okay. Now everyone's going, that's why I'm leaving this church. All right, moving on. <laughs> Let's go into the heart of the message today. The heart of the message is the next slide. Remember, I told you that all the bad stuff occurs uh, what the Bible seems to suggest over a seven year period. Why do we think it's seven years? Well, because it talks about three and a half years here, and then three and a half years here, the first half, second half. We think about Daniel's 70th week. When you go into the Old Testament, it starts talking about all this stuff. So a lot of people believe that there is going to be a seven year literal period where things are going to be terrible. The whole mark of the beast type stuff, right? stars falling out of the sky, the sun turning black, the moon turning blood red, all that. So what do we do with all this? That is called the tribulation. So are we going to be here? This is the big view that we have in mind. So let me go through a little bit. Everything hinges on the question of this. Is there such a thing as a rapture? You go, rapture? What's a rapture? A rapture is the great vacuum of God. It is where Jesus comes down halfway in the clouds, sucks up all the believers. It's silent. It's invisible. Nobody has any idea. All of a sudden, boom, people are left behind. Hey, are we all clear on what that is? It is the most popular view Today, it is the one that became so popular from the Left Behind series, all right? So this is the pre-tribulation. Jesus will come back before the tribulation, take his church out. Now, why would people think that? Let me give you the top five reasons why. If you take notes, this is where you got to start taking notes, all right? So let's do this. The top five reasons why people believe this. You ready to jump in your Bibles? Let's do it as fast as possible. Number one. God has not appointed his church to wrath. That's the first argument. God has not appointed his church to wrath. Why do they think that? First Thessalonians 5, 9, page 837 says this. But God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So number one, why in the world would we be here when the wrath isn't for us? You don't want to, if God's pouring down his wrath and his anger, it's got no business with his kids. So why in the world would they be here? Nope, we're going to be sucked out before all of that. All right? Number two, Christ's return is imminent and sudden without warning. And you go, what? What are you talking about? 
Matthew 24, 36, page 701 says this. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the son of man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Well, that's pretty clear. Number three, there's no explicit mention of the church after Revelation chapter four. You go, what? Well, you go through and you look at it and the church isn't talked about. So we now have Revelation church, 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 chapter four, gone right after the come up here line. That's why a lot of people think that that is the rapture passage. Number four, the Bible speaks of two returns of Christ. Does it really? First Thessalonians four fifteen. This is the famous rapture passage. According to the Lord's own word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of our Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. That's the word parousia. That's the word that Jerome in Latin called the rapture. The word rapture is not in your Bible. Jerome came up with it. It means to be caught up. Halfway is the idea. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, well, that sounds pretty good too, right? Number five, you ready for number five argument? God has a history of taking the righteous out prior to his wrath coming down. What do I mean? Well, anybody remember Sodom and Gomorrah when it was destroyed? There was a bunch of wrath coming down on that. So what did God do? He sent his angels to go in and do what? Get Lot out. Hey, I'm going to destroy this place. It's got nothing to do with you. You're the righteous guy. Get your family and let's get out of here. And when he hesitated, the angels literally pulled him out of there. Then everything rained down. Okay, you got it? Everybody pre-trib yet? Here's some of the problems with the view. You ready? Number one, improper context of the word wrath. Every time the verse is cited that says we are not appointed to wrath, it is speaking about salvation. It has nothing to do with the end times. It immediately goes back to saying we are no longer under the wrath of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't speak at all whatsoever with the wrath of the end times in Revelation. So first of all, the wrath is way out of context. Number two, believers are changed at quote unquote the last trumpet. Why do I believe that? First Corinthians 15:51. Listen, I tell you a mystery, Paul said. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. When? The last trumpet. What do you think last means? Last. In Revelation, there's a bunch of trumpets, and they come a lot later. And when you get done with the last trumpet, you're certainly not at a rapture before the tribulation. Number three, the Bible continually speaks of overcoming and enduring for the church. 
Matthew 24, 3, the disciples said, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Oops. Number four, Christ's return is after the Antichrist is revealed. Second Thessalonians 2 1 concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report or letter supposed to have come from us saying the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. It doesn't happen till when? Uh Oh, number five. There are many times the Bible warns believers of signs to get them ready. First Thessalonians five, one brothers about times and dates. We do not need to write you for, you know, very well, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But verse four, but you brothers are not in darkness. So the day should surprise you like a thief. Uh Oh, you are the sons of the light and the sons of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like the others who are asleep. Let us be alert and self-control. Anybody pre-trib anymore? That's why my job is so difficult. I have a 31-page document arguing out all these. You want it? I'll send it to you. I'm still working on it. I'm not even started yet. What about mid-trib? What does it say? Pre-trib says we get sucked out before the bad stuff. Mid-trib also has a different title known as pre-wrath, meaning it doesn't have to be midway. It could be anywhere in there. It's just there's a difference between tribulation, bad stuff, and God's wrath. The church has no business with God's wrath, so they're going to see bad stuff. They're going to see the Antichrist set up. They're going to do all that, and then they will get pulled out. Is that accurate? Well, sure, there's arguments for it. Same thing. God hasn't appointed the church to wrath. They get to see the Antichrist revealed. The Bible warns of signs to get ready. Then we notice that both in Daniel and in Revelation, there's a significant break at three and a half years. Why is there a significant break? That's when things start getting bad. Is that when the church is taken? And then there's one other argument. Remember when I was just reading the seals being broken in Revelation? In the fifth seal, it says, and I looked and there underneath the altar of God were all the martyrs who had been killed in the tribulation. And they said, God, how long till you avenge our blood? God said, wait, they were all given white robes. He said, wait, by the time we go to the sixth seal, the day of the Lord signs start happening. The blood moon, the blackened sun. 
in by the seventh seal, there's a multitude of people in white robes praising God. How did all those people get there? If the tribulation wasn't halfway through and before the wrath, they were pulled up. Well, so we all mid-trib now? Right? Ah, it seems to fit, doesn't it? Same problems. The wrath is out of context. Believers are changed at the last trumpet. What did I tell you last meant? Last. The Antichrist has power over the saints for the last three and a half years. You're like, what? Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, speaking of the Antichrist, he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws, and the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. So all the bad half that we keep wanting to get out of, we're underneath the Antichrist. Oops, that's a problem. Believers go up on the last day. I will raise them up, John says, on the last day. And they will have eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. And he says it seven other times. The last day. I think last day means a lot like the last trumpet. I think it means last. Matthew twenty four twenty six. Listen to this one. You sure that it's going to be secretive? You sure everyone's going to disappear? Zoop! And they're going to go up and everyone's going to go, oh my gosh, I'm left behind. What happened? Is that really how it's going to go down? Well, Matthew 24, 26, Jesus said, so if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He said, if anyone tells you that it's secret, don't believe him. Everyone will see it. Ah, now what are we? Now we're all post-trib, right? Are there any arguments for that stuff? Yep. Right? Believers won't be taken up till the last trumpet. The Bible speaks of overcoming and enduring. There's only one return of Christ, not two. We don't have the yo-yo effect, right? Jesus goes, I'm coming down halfway. Zoop. Oh, now I'm coming all the way down because the Bible is very clear that it says when Jesus returns, his feet will be on the Mount of Olives. So either he has to have two returns or he's got to have one. If he has one, it's got to be at the end because that's when he sets up the millennial reign. So what are we supposed to believe? Is there a history of God leaving his people in during times of wrath? Yep. Remember when God was breaking Egypt's neck? You remember the 10 plagues, the whole Red Sea parting stuff? Where was Israel? Right there. In the land of Goshen, lived through the whole thing, saw all the plagues, had all their friends that were Egyptian die. Remember? They were right there the whole time. What about Rahab? When the walls of Jericho fell, where was she? Still in her house. People go, but Noah, he was pulled out first before the flood. They got him in the boat and got him away. But he was still there, wasn't he? You think it was easy trying to build an ark? It was easy watching all your friends die? It was easy managing all those animals? He was still alive through all that. So what are we supposed to believe? What are we supposed to do with all this stuff? Are there problems with that? Yeah, there's a lot of passages about it being secret and sudden. Just because you know the season doesn't mean you know the day. Hmm. God does have a history of taking the righteous out, so that argument falls out. 
even though the saints are underneath the power of the Antichrist for the last three and a half years, maybe those are the ones that were in the tribulation that came to know Christ after everyone was gone. Maybe that's what it means. I understand there's no mention of the church. Now, so what are you? Anybody changing your view? <laughs> we got to go somewhere, right? We got to keep moving forward. We got to figure this stuff out. So which is it? As I move forward and teach you, I will be showing you how all of them are going to be represented. I will go through and give you arguments about all of them. You will eventually see me tip my hat. Here's what I found is fascinating about where I stand. Biblically, when I examine, I fall in one camp. The way I live, I fall in another camp. I tend to believe one with my heart and one with my head. And I can't seem to reconcile the two. There is tremendous tension for me because I, my job is to examine Scripture alone. And I have done that to an extreme degree, and I still don't know. Is that tension supposed to be there? I will suggest to you this. There's a reason why God doesn't lay everything out. You know why? Because we'll take advantage of it, we'll use it as a formula, and if he's at the end, we'll wait till that time, we'll party all the way till the time, and if it's sudden and immediate, then we're going to live a totally different way out of fear. I think the Lord is ambiguous for a reason. We will have things get a little bit clearer for us as we sort it out, and ultimately, does the order matter? No, it does not. The truth remains. And we close with a passage I'd like you to read with me. Turn with me to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, page 861. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 9, page 861. As we are doing that, let me give you one last warning or one last uh, challenge. When the Bible tells us to be alert about the end times, he does not say to be paranoid. That means we do not do newspaper exegesis. You guys know what newspaper exegesis is? It means every new thing that comes in the newspaper, I get an email about it. It's the end times. Barack Obama became president. Oh my gosh, he's the Antichrist. George Bush was the Antichrist. Bill Clinton was the Antichrist. Every president that's been around since I've been alive has been the Antichrist. Right? And every new piece of technology is the mark of the beast. I remember the credit card was the mark of the beast. Okay, I remember all this stuff. Oh my gosh, they're implanting chips into little animals. Did you know that? Okay, I get it. I get all those emails. What it does is it makes us look skittish and silly and paranoid. When the Bible says be alert, what you do is you use sober judgment to examine issues. Look at them over a period of time. Do not just jump on the latest fad and immediately go, oh my gosh, the end of the world is now. Could it be now? Yes. But if really it's going to hit immediately after the newspaper figures it out, I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> if they're better theologians than we are, we're in trouble. So as we move forward, let's keep our heads screwed on and let's make sure that we look at this stuff with sober judgment. Would you read with me? Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, page 861. It says this, and I would like to leave you with this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you would even reveal your mysteries to us that, Lord, as we go through this book and examine and do our best, Lord, I just ask that it would change us into people that love you more, that love other people more, that we would become more Christ-like and our hearts would be caught up in worship of you. That, Lord, that we would not become withdrawn, isolated, or cynical, but, Lord, that we would become loving, pouring out, caring for those around us even more as your day draws near. May you be glorified and praised in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.